So today, in, as we continue our verse-by-verse study of Romans, we're starting in chapter 10, and we're going to be moving from verses 14 to 21. At least that's my agenda. That's the plan. And uh, let me give you guys a, a rundown of a few of the topics that will come up as we're doing this. There will be a lot of stuff, but here's a few of them just to kind of prep your mind. Um, are street preachers really doing it right? That's one topic I want to I address a little bit. Um, are these people that go around proclaiming the gospel, are they really doing it right? Should they really be doing that kind of stuff? Hmm. Um, also, uh, how to get more faith. <laughs> that's, that's like a good, maybe that should be the title of the, of the study, right? How to get more faith in, a, in the biblical sense. Um, how God prophesied more than Messiah. That in the Old Testament, it, it was not only prophecies about Jesus, but God actually prophesied more than just about Messiah. Um, and so I'm excited to ex- explain what I mean by that. And there's finally, there's going to be a warning for us to not be stiff-necked. And, I, and something we should take very seriously as we, as we hear the voice of God speaking to our own hearts, whether it's in the Word, from a, from a friend ministering to us, from just the Spirit working in us. Um, we, we have this warning not to be stiff-necked. And the example in this passage... Uh, to take action as God speaks to you. Now, there's more as well, and it'll also be kind of a payoff moment because last week I did a topical on what about those who never hear the gospel? That was the title of that study. What about those who never hear the gospel? Um, I'm not going to reteach that today, but I'm kind of counting on the fact that I I built that case biblically for for what I think the Bible's teaching on that topic so that I could just refer to it and go, yeah, see, that makes, point, that makes my point. Because trying to teach that topic while going verse by verse through Romans 10 seemed difficult. Like, it seemed like I would lose the passage while I was teaching a side issue. So I just dealt with a side issue separately. <clears throat> so, the details I went over last week will help us here. Um, it's, a truth, it's a truth that's nuanced and careful and balanced. And I think that, I'll take a second to mention this, is as Christians, we, we have like a kindergarten level understanding of Christianity like a preschool or child, children level of, under, of, of understanding when it comes to what Christians believe. And that's great for kids. You know, you teach kids things at a lower level because they can't comprehend them quite at a higher level. But as you grow in Christ, as you get older in Christ, you really need to move on to this deeper understanding of Christ. It's not, it's not a different Jesus or a different gospel or different theology. It's just a better understanding of these things. Um, so that, So these things were true down here, but they were just more nuanced truths as you, as you grow in wisdom. Um, so the reason why this is so important is because the world attacks Christians. And when they attack, you'll see this over and over again, when they attack Christians, they don't attack the robust, full understanding of Christianity. What do they attack? They attack preschool-level Christianity, kindergarten-level Christianity. So they, they're like, can God make a rock so big he can't lift it? Huh? I thought God could do anything. And then you're like thinking of what you tell kids. God can do anything. He's all powerful. But as you get older, you're like, well, what do you mean by anything? You know, so you start to get a more nuanced understanding of this. He's all powerful, you know, but, but, but these are non-things. So the atheist and the skeptic often will attack a, a childish version of Christianity. So it's great to have these robust, nuanced understandings that the scripture gives us of things like, what about those who've never heard or about some of the topics we'll cover today? Um, also, just a reminder, this is a Bible study. So we are studying the Bible. And you can evaluate my teaching in one very wonderful way. 
after the study, after I teach, you could look at the passage and you can reread these verses I'm covering and you can ask yourself, do I understand this now? Do I understand this hopefully better than before? Were the things that were shared consistent with this? Or do I hear all that and then I read the verses again and go, I still don't see how anything he said relates to what I just read. Because that would not be a Bible study, right? That would be something else. That would be a message of some kind, but not exactly a Bible study. Um, so you should be able to understand the passage better on the way out than you did on the way in, unless you just fully understood it, in which case you should probably be teaching. Um, I mean, seriously, though, <laughs> why not um, get involved? Okay, so let's, let's get some context here. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13. I just want to lay the context that leads us into the passage that we're covering today. So Romans 10, verses 9 through 13, it says, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord overall is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever, whoever calls upon or calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now this area is where I'll say the kindergarten level doesn't really need much nuance, right? The kindergarten level when it comes to simple gospel salvation truth, man, you call upon Jesus, you'll be saved. I could tell that to the kindergarten, uh, kindergarten kid. I could tell it to the adult, you know, who's a mechanical engineer or whatever. You will be saved. This is a simple truth that doesn't need a lot of nuance. It really doesn't, <clears throat> except to say this. You can't be a liar when you're calling upon the name of the Lord. Like, I confess Jesus is Lord. This is obviously a true confession, not a false confession. I put a sword in your face, and you go, Jesus is Lord, and now you're saved. That is obviously not what the passage is teaching. Only a fool would think that. Um, so it is really that simple. But this brings up some issues. And so Paul is now, after he's unpacked this, sim this simple gospel from the complexity of all of the teaching of Romans leading up to it, like this climax of this big payoff moment for, for the gospel. Um, now he's going to deal with possible objections to the message that is simply by faith you're saved. And so verse, uh, verse 14, he says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. There's a lot of questions, question after question after question. He isn't even necessarily answering the questions. He asks one and asks another. Paul uses questions a few different ways in, in his writings that we have in the New Testament. Um, one of them is, is a rhetorical no. He uses the question to deny the thing like to deny the whole mindset behind the person asking the question or to say no to the question. Here's an example. Uh, Romans 6.15, he goes, What then shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Like this is no way. You don't sin because you're not under That's a total misunderstanding of the gospel message. Um, in 1 Corinthians 12.30, he says, Do all have gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? And it's a big rhetorical, no, they don't all do these things. They don't all. That's not the goal of the church. That's not, although some churches make it their goal, they need to read Romans or 1 Corinthians 12 
uh, in particular verse 30, and allow this to impact their hearts. That it, this is what scripture teaches, right? Of course, this is not a teaching on tongues, so I'm not going to get into that. But you get the point, though. He's asking these questions that, that have a rhetorical no. Um, other times, Paul's doing something different with his questions. And this is, I think, what's happening in this passage in Romans. It's not about a rhetorical no. It's about helping you think through a process, helping you kind of go from one place of thinking to another to draw logical conclusions. Um, so let me give you an example of that. 1 Corinthians 10, 16. Here's like Paul trying to get you to think about something with a question. He says, The cup of blessing which we bless, speaking of the communion cup, uh, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? To think about the, the implications of this. It's the communion of the blood of Christ. It's interesting how he didn't just say it was the blood of Christ. Because is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? So he's going to draw out the idea that in, in, uh, in communion, there's a fellowship with Christ and there's a fellowship with each other as the body of Christ. And he wants believers to think about these things because the Corinthians had watered down the power and the wonder and the the theological masterpiece that is communion. They'd watered these things down. So he's trying to get them to think it through in the first Corinthians passage. So this is what I think is happening here. So let's, let's consider these questions in verses 14 and 15. It's a thought process started when he finished establishing that salvation is going to be through grace and through faith. I'm just going to believe and I'll get saved. So then he says, how then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? Like, how, well, if you have to call upon the Lord to be saved, well, you're not going to call on him if you don't believe in him. Again, empty calling is not going to work here. We need a belief, a real faith calling. And how shall they believe on him who they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Do you see the, the process? If I'm going to call, I have to believe. If I'm going to believe, then I have to hear. If I'm going to hear, then I have to have a preacher. Paul is just trying to get us to recognize that people need to preach the gospel. I think that's what he's trying to do. The conclusion is this. Preachers are good. Preachers are necessary. Because how are people going to call on Jesus if they never hear about Jesus? Now you see the importance of last week's study because this is a nuanced truth and I refer you to last week. about <laughs> What about those who've never heard? There is still hope for them. Um, but it's, you have to draw that out with scripture, not just make stuff up and, <laughs> and try to make, you know, be like, everybody's okay. Like we got we to gotta go with scripture here. Um, so this, this, I think, verses 14 and 15, I think Paul's trying to highlight the need for people to preach the gospel. It's like, a, it's like an intense need. Is there, is there much in life more valuable or important than the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus to the, to the, to the world? I don't know. I can't think of much. Uh, what else has a payoff of eternal life? Um, I can't think of anything. So to affirm this, Paul's going to quote Isaiah. And he quotes Isaiah and he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. This shows me that he's like, he's not saying rhetorical no. He's saying rhetorical, oh yeah. This is for sure. You need to do this. We need people to preach. And the description is of them having beautiful feet. Why are their feet beautiful? I mean, let's face it. Most of us, like especially the older we get, like the less beautiful our feet are. You know, I'm, I, I used to look at my, my mom's toes, you know, when I was growing up. And I was like, why are they all pointed different directions, mom? And older I get, the more I'm like, my toes are looking like my mom's toes, you know, like starting to notice these things, you know. <clears throat> so I just got one that just goes, quonk, just right off to the side. I don't know why that is. So these are not beautiful feet, literally. It's, it's that back then the message, messages and messengers 
were not coming through text devices and electronic signals, right? They were coming through people who were carrying with their feet a message from one town to another. And so the anticipation of when that, when that news person shows up in town with messages for people in town. Oh, how beautiful are the feet of these people. They're bringing us news from our loved ones, news from our family. And when they bring good news, oh, how wonderful it is. And how much more wonderful then is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you share this good news, it is wonderful. I wonder, <clears throat> are you motivated to share the gospel? Because I find that, uh, that in my Christian life, there's been a battle in my own heart to proclaim the gospel, to tell people about the gospel, to, to tell like, I'm not sure exactly what to say, or I don't think they want to hear it, or maybe now is not the right time. All those types of concerns and worries. But if they result in me like basically never sharing the gospel, then I must be doing something wrong, right? Because I'm sure that that's not the plan. <laughs> I'm sure that's not it. But we do live in highly critical times. We live in times where people are more worried about the style with which people share the gospel than whether or not they share it at all. It seems to me. Open-air preachers is one example of this. I've, I remember years ago seeing these open-air preachers. They'd be up there sharing, and I, and I walked by, and it was like, they're loud. Loud is abrasive. I don't know if that's the right way to share. I remember thinking that. And then I was reading the Bible more and more, and it was like, man, I'm not sure that, that this is all that different from what the apostles did, or even what Jesus did, or certainly John the Baptist. I mean, read, read what they, these guys did. Just read these, these texts and acts and, and in, uh, in, in the Gospels. Open-air preachers, do you know their biggest critics? The biggest critics, the biggest people who come against those preaching open-air are Christians. And I've seen it time and time again when I've been there to support an open-air preacher, someone who's out there sharing and I'm handing out tracts along with them or something like that. And then who comes up to tell them that they should stop talking? A Christian. I'm not saying they're not a Christian. I just don't know. I don't know you. You come up and you say you're Christian, fine. So a Christian comes up and they tell them like, judge not! Like the only verse that they know taken completely out of context, completely out of context. If we look at the scripture, we see Jesus's example. He went around proclaiming the kingdom of God. And if you read what he said to people, this blows me away. This is not natural to me, okay? But this is what the text says. This is what the Bible says. Jesus went around preaching people to repent for the kingdom of God was at hand. He then sent the disciples out and he told them, when you go around, door-to-door, -door, house to house, when you go town to town, tell people to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then in the gospel, we, we see this being carried out throughout the message of the gospel. This was John the Baptist's message too. And if that's not consistent enough, you've got the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, you have the apostles going around, and what do they tell people to do? Repent. Not go to church. If I can just get him to church. Hey man, I mean, it's good. I would invite people to come to church. I hope, I hope people will come to church. But the preaching of the gospel isn't really an at-church event. It's a body of Christ thing that's just we do as we go around. The apostles, they responded to people who said, Peter, what do we do? And he goes, oh, well, read the Bible and pray. Ask God to reveal himself to you. They say, what do we do? And Peter says, repent. Repent. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. 
Come, be baptized for the remission of sins. He tells them to get saved and to make a commitment to Christ. And I'm just going like, nowadays, modern day Americans and many people around the world, if they sat back and could just witness Paul or Peter or Stephen or these guys in Acts who are preaching, they would sit there like this. That's not the way you do it. I mean, you can do that if you want, but it's not going to work. And this is the stuff I hear. It's not going to... The last ditch effort of the person resisting the preaching of the gospel is when they is when they can't fight against the fact that it's biblical because you show them example after example after example that there's a loving but bold proclamation of the gospel of, of yes, you need to repent. It's not repent because I hate your guts. This is a call of love and grace to call people to repentance. But when they, when they can't go against you with scripture, when you show them Jesus did it, John did it, all the apostles did it, they told us to do it. <laughs> when you get all this out, then they say, well, fine, you can do that, but it won't work. It won't work. And to that I say, wrong. That's just not, that's not true. It's simply not true that that doesn't, quote, work. Many people have been saved this way. Read the book of Acts. I mean, if you believe the scripture, you believe 3,000 3, souls were added to the church that day. So, yes, it can work. Um, now, the world's response to persecution, or to persecute the believers who are trying to share the gospel, their world's response it's interesting, it, persecution does not start with, with stones being thrown or violence or threats exactly. It starts with this. Shh. This isn't the place. Just stop. Nobody wants to hear this. This isn't the time. This isn't the, the way. This isn't the style that we like. You know, just, just stop. Shh. And the world just tries to get us to be quiet. The early apostles, what they were told was, stop preaching in the name of Jesus, okay? You can do everything else you want. You can have your, 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 your food ministry. You can have your things. But stop proclaiming the name of Jesus. Stop telling people they need to put their faith in Jesus. That's the, that's the beginning of persecution. And if you bow to it, persecution ends. There is no persecution because I bowed to the silence. But if you're then speaking up and continuing to, to proclaim the gospel, that's when persecution intensifies because the shh didn't work. And I'm only saying this because I see this in the text. I mean, I see this in the book of Acts. As I've studied through, that's what we see. Um, and it makes sense that Satan wants to, wants to shut down Christians to tell us to be quiet because he wants to end the preaching of the gospel. Um, so these can become complaints about style. Oh, you know, I, I remember one time we had a, uh, an outreach and there was a, a preacher who came and um, somebody complained about it afterwards. And the thing is, he was kind and he was funny, but he shared the gospel. You know, he shared, yep, you've sinned and what, what's going to happen when you stand before God? You need a savior. Jesus is that savior. What are you going to do? Will you repent and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? So it was, it was confrontational, though it was loving and gracious and even humorous. And one family complained about this. So our group of pastors shut down the, that, that evangelism outreach and said, well, we'll just hand out tracts and we won't have someone on the stage. And this caused a bit of a stink, or maybe I caused a bit of a stink <laughs> when this was going on. But this really broke my heart because it's like, okay, one family complained. Why? Because they don't understand the biblical preaching of the gospel. That's, that's the reason. Of course, they're Christians. They're people who donate to their church and stuff like that. So... So then it was taken uh, way too seriously. I should take the scripture more seriously than these complaints. Um, then there's this other style attack we get against the gospel. Preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. If? I'm sorry. If? Now, okay, I get this. 
that we need to live a, a, a righteous and loving life before the world. That that's absolutely important for us to do as those who share the gospel. But if... I once had someone ask me, Mike, and this was a, a leader in the church. He asked me, he said, Mike, don't you think that when I just go, me and my wife, and we sit in the coffee shop and we drink coffee, don't you think that we're proclaiming the gospel? Let's think about that for a moment. No. <laughs> no, you're not. No, and I'm not either when I'm doing that. Um, maybe I'm somehow portraying, you know, something godly in, in our relationship with each other. Maybe I'm encouraging people or being helpful or loving. But I'm, see, the gospel is specific information about Jesus. And it is not gained by watching people's lives. It is gained by hearing their words. That's the nature of the gospel. In fact, the word preach, it doesn't mean live godly. Preaching the gospel is, is, is a word thing. It involves a message that you actually get out of your mouth or on a piece of paper that you write down or you sign language it to people or you use a needle and put it in Braille and put, you know, you, somehow you get information across to people. This seems pretty basic, but it's lost. Um, and the, this phrase, preach the gospel at all times, it should, be say, it should say, preach the gospel at all times. Use words. That's what it should say. Let's just take if necessary out since it is necessary. Preach the gospel at all times. Use words. So my encouragement would be this. Um, we should avoid the self-righteous rejection of the type of preaching that we see Jesus and the apostles do. When we see it in other people and we go, I don't really like your style. That was a little abrasive. That wasn't as loving as I thought. You offended my friend. Avoid the self-righteousness that decides that it was the preacher's fault and not the sin and sinful heart of the friend that was reacting negatively against the gospel that they finally heard. Let's just say, God, I'll be humble about this. Jesus, there's times where you were pretty harsh. The apostles were very straightforward. Not, not hateful, not unloving, but very harsh and straightforward. There were times where they did that. So I want to avoid that. And I want to pretty much support the sharing of the gospel unless it is something really wrong. Even if someone's doing something slightly off, <laughs> slightly a little weird, not quite my style, I still want to support them in the preaching of the gospel as long as that's still the gospel. And I think that's a great attitude to have because we're one body in Christ and this one message is the most important thing we communicate to the world. So that seems wise to me because how beautiful are the feet of them that bring good news? It's needed. How will they, how will they believe if they don't hear? How will they hear if there's no preacher? So this, of course, brings up some, some natural issues. Um, and verse 16, he's going to deal with that. He says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Um, this is from Isaiah 52, 7. And it's actually this passage, Lord, who's believed our report, is right before the great messianic passage of Isaiah, the greatest probably passage in the book of Isaiah. And it, it talks specifically about Jesus, how he was, he was uh, bruised, how he was striped. It was for our iniquities and our sins that the chastening of our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all upon him. Like this is that beautiful, beautiful passage. It's God's incredible sacrificial love for us. Um, and what does he say right before that was, Lord, who's believed our report? So let's notice the flow of thought he has here. Why does he quote this, this verse? Because that, that's what we're noticing in, in Romans here, especially this passage which is directed towards, towards Jews very strongly. Is he's, he's 
following like a, a logic, an Old Testament logic. Um, it goes like this. The need for a preacher brings up an obvious issue. I could say, well, no one ever told me. You could easily say, no one ever told me. And then leave, it, leave the idea out there that, that millions or billions of people are, are, are being unsaved simply for lack of hearing. That that's the, that's the only reason why they're not being saved. And so, to take that and deal with that issue, he says, well, let's take as an example those who did hear. And let's ask, do people all get saved when they hear the gospel? And so he says, Lord, who believed our report? It seems that, it's special, in particular with Israel, with, in Isaiah's time, he's like, who, who even believes the things I'm bringing? I'm, God has called me as his messenger. I'm bringing the words of God. I've got, I've got all this stuff. And who even believes it? Who even receives it? It may not be the case that anybody could say, oh, if someone, if someone just told me, if someone just told me, because there are things that they've heard and they've rejected. I think this is a real commentary on mankind. Like how hard-hearted are we that we hear the gospel and reject it? And reject it, just casually cast it off, throw it off. And I've heard it rejected for the silliest reasons. Oh, I'll do it later. You'll do it later? So you're saying no. Why? Well, I just I have things I want to do in my life. Things like what? Like what family, love, you know, being a productive member of society, like good things like that. No, no, like sin that I want to just do, you know. Like it just shows the hard heart of mankind. So we're taking those who did hear as an example, you see how, how many people hear the gospel and reject it, and you go, don't be acting like, oh, we're all out here ready for the gospel. Like we're all like, you know, wheat ready for the harvest when so many actually reject it. Um, so responding to the gospel is this primary issue. And the one thing I'll say this is everyone who he's talking about in verse 16, everybody who says, what about those who never heard has heard? And I've, I've dealt with the issue about what about those who never heard. But let me deal for a second with the issue of what about those who were asking this question as an excuse against God? What about those who've never heard? It's like you've obviously heard or you wouldn't be asking the question. So the question is, what about you? What about those who have heard? What will the judgment be for those who hear and reject the gospel? Who listen to and receive and then just ignore and reject those things? The issue with a lot of the Jewish people during Paul's time was that they simply had a lack of faith, not a lack of hearing. And that's what he'll get to more and more. Um, so the point is, the number of those who reject the gospel after hearing it are evidence that it's not like we're all poor victims just needing a preacher. You know, preachers go out and they're rejected all the time. This happens quite a lot. And I, I think that this can be shown through some people who are unbelievers and you ask them a question. I've done this a lot as a youth leader. Um, I'll pull a kid aside and, I'll, and I, they're living a rebellious life against God, yet they're attending church because they like the social side of things and we'll get lunch or something. And I ask, um, you know, do you believe these things are true? And they're like, no, I don't know. I don't know if it's really true. I don't know if it's true. So we talk about it. And I say, well, well, give me the specific reasons why you're doubting. And we talk about those doubts and I give them good reasons and support and evidence and all that kind of fun stuff. And then I said, so will you, you want to follow now? <laughs> and the answer is like, no, I still don't know. And I said, can I tell you why I think you don't want to follow? And I go, why? I said, because of the sin issue. You just want to do what you want to do. That's the real reason to reject Jesus for you. You've had your questions answered and you still want to reject Jesus. It's a sin issue. 
so then I said, well, they go, I don't know what you mean, sin issue. And this is a specific conversation I remember having with a student. And I said, let me explain what I mean by sin issue. Let's suppose that you knew for 100% certainty that everything in Christianity was totally true. Would you then follow Jesus? And the student said, I don't think so. And I said, that's the sin issue. <laughs> it's not about truth. It's about I want what I want and I want to do what I want against God in this case. I think we can get this as well from some atheist, some atheist, just atheist watching. I said some, notice that, um, who, will, who will respond to the question, what if you're wrong? And I've listened to lots of different atheists answer this question, what if you're wrong? And the most common response I get is a self-righteous attitude towards God. Like if I'm wrong and I stand before God, I'll be like, God, let me tell you what you did wrong. And I'm going, like, I just want to like tear my skin off because I just, I'm like, that's insane. It's insane. Like if I was, if I was wrong and I stood before Vishnu, I'd be like, oh man, I blew it. <laughs> this would be, I mean, that's not going to happen, but my attitude would be like, oh no, I'm uh, sorry. You know, like I'd be really bummed out. I was preaching wrong this whole time leading other people away from, you know, the truth and all this kind of stuff, I'd feel pretty bad about that. This is hypothetical, right? This is not in the realm of actual possibility, but that would to be an honest answer to that question. But, but so often an atheist or a skeptic responds like, if I'm wrong, God's wrong. <laughs> if I'm wrong, I got some questions for him. What about, uh, one of the recent ones, what about children with bone cancer? That was one of the more recent ones. I think it was Stephen Fry who came out, the British guy. And, att and attacked the idea of God because he was asked, what if he's wrong? And I'm like, like, can we just have a, a restoration of an ounce of humility into humanity here and say, if I'm wrong and I've been rejecting God and speaking against him this whole time, all I'm thinking is, uh, oh. But the response of basically, if I knew it was true, I would still reject that God, and I would, I'd rather go to hell. I've heard this from atheists as well. I'd rather go to hell than experience living with that kind of God. Then it's like, well, your condemnation is just. The hard heart is revealed here. It's not lack of preachers in this case. This is the sinful love of sin that is in my heart. And the delusions and the, and the deceptions that get, get piled upon each other in the mind of one who continually rejects God. Verse 17, it says, <clears throat> so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So this is like a conclusion moment. Paul's like, so here's the conclusion, right? You need to hear of the preacher. If you're going to believe in him and call on him and hear about him, you've got to have a preacher. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Um, I don't think this is exactly, it, it, there's something mystical about it, yeah, but there's, but there's something simplistic about it as well, which is just this, like I hear God's word and it and I respond with faith because I believe the things I hear. So I'm believing God. So I have more faith. Saving faith comes from hearing the word of God. So again, we need preachers. We do, we do need the preachers. But let's not act like the lack of preacher becomes an excuse for the unsaved. That's the, that's the nuance that Paul's giving us, which I, did, I talked more about last, uh, last time. So saving faith comes by hearing the word of God. But what about stronger faith? What about faith to greater and lesser degrees? I mean, do all Christians have the same amount of faith? I mean, we have saving faith. Like, I have faith that saves, but do I have it to the same degree? I mean, I can say in my own life, I have more faith now than I did 10 years ago. More faith 
10 years ago than I did 10 years before that. Certainly, my faith is, is more now than it was at earlier times in my life. But biblically, we can say this too. In fact, <clears throat> in Luke 7, 9, Jesus meets a centurion. And he says about this guy who, he's like, Jesus, will you heal my son? And Jesus says, I'll come. And he goes, no, no, you don't even need to come. I know you can just say the word and he'll be healed. And Jesus says, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. There's like a degree of faith that this guy's got. That's interesting, isn't it? There was a father who wanted healing for his son. And he comes and Jesus says that he can heal him if he believes. And this, this guy responds. And it's one of the most beautiful verses for those who, who've, who are, who've doubted. I don't know if you've ever doubted. I'm sure it's never happened to any of you. But I have definitely <laughs> went through a pretty intense season of that. Um, and he says this, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And here we have a guy who has belief and unbelief co-mingling in, in the same guy. Lord, I have unbelief. There's like things that are unbelief in me, but there's belief in me too. And I believe. I choose belief even though I'm struggling with this doubt. And Jesus, what does he do? He heals the man's son. So that, was, that would be little faith. That would be a small amount of faith, but it was still enough to access God and his power and his goodness and all that. But the centurion, he had even more faith. Do you see there's different degrees of faith. I don't know how to measure this and I certainly wouldn't try. I'm sure that Harvest Crusade has like a, a, a test you could take online that will let you test how much faith you have. I'm just kidding. They have that spiritual gifts test that's kind of fun. But um, just just take it as fun, not God's truth. But but there's another example. In the, in the book of Acts chapter 6, it says that Stephen was a man who was full of faith. He was full of faith. He didn't just have faith. He was full of faith. And we see this in his proclamation, his stance for Jesus Christ. So there is a biblical way to say, a biblical grounding to say that there is greater and lesser degrees of faith, even among the saved. You have faith, but how much do you have is the thing. So here's a thought. If faith comes by hearing the word, and I want more faith, maybe I should be in the Bible more. <laughs> I know that the study of God's word has really increased my faith, but also just hearing it and just reading it has increased my own faith. I've had times where I was going through trials and hardships and my heart is down and I put on Philippians and just listen to it or I just read through a book of the Bible and I'm just like, what I read didn't necessarily have exact application to what I'm going through, but somehow it just encouraged my faith. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. This is a good thing to remember. We should just drench ourselves in the word of God. Um, I love the word of God. And it is something spiritual that happens as I hear it, as I respond, and I grow in faith. So you want more faith? I'm not saying there's no other way to do it, but certainly faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. There's the other old phrase that faith is like a muscle. The more you use it, the bigger it gets. <laughs> well, there's an element of truth that's in there, right? That you're exercising your faith, pun intended. Um, but, but yeah, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So you just share these things. You share these truths. Now, what I, what I don't really like is random Bible verses posted in response to specific questions that people have. They're like, how do I know the Bible hasn't been changed? And then I just post like, forever, oh Lord, your word is settled in heaven. And the guy's like, 
it's not what I was asking. <laughs> so there's, you know, I'm not saying that we should try to use the Bible to like, here's the verse for you. Like, that's not exactly the thing. If the verse answers the question, great. But if not, let's not pretend it does. But there is a simple proclamation of God's truth that accesses right into the heart of man to see if they receive it and they get saved. Um, that's, that is absolutely legit. You don't need to know everything in the world um, in order to preach the gospel. You can just share the word and let them respond. Verse 18, let's go on. He says, but I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed, their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Now, this, in my opinion, is where people lose Romans 10. Like in verse 18, I think that they, a lot of teachers like just miss this verse. Like they read it and keep going and they don't recognize how it relates to what has already been said. This is a nuanced truth. The question is, in verse 18, have they not heard? And I take they to be generic. It's, a, it's an everybody they. Right? You need to hear a preacher to respond with faith. So the question is, but haven't they heard? So this is where the nuance comes in. Indeed, everyone has heard something of the word of God because creation itself proclaims the truth of God. That's what Psalm 19 is about, and that's what this quote is from. Their sound has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. Let me, let me read to you Psalm 19, the first four verses. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Everyone hears these truths. There's, their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, he set a tabernacle for the sun, and, and it continues. It goes on talking about creation. Then it starts talking about the, the, the word of God, the written word of God. So you have creation, you have the written word, but the, cre the creation, the written word has not reached every single human. Creation has. Romans 1 talked about this. Do you remember? That the, the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen through the created things. So that men are, to quote Romans 1, without excuse. Without excuse. So why is Paul quoting this here? Um, some people think he's quoting Psalm 19 kind of out of context. And they go, they're like, hey, he's Paul the Apostle. He's allowed to do that. And that's their perspective. Let me explain what they mean. They think they're saying Psalm 19, which says their line has gone throughout all the earth. They're saying that the, the line or the, the message of the gospel has gone throughout all the earth. And Paul's proclaiming, everybody knows about Jesus. That seems wrong for two reasons to me. One, that's not what Psalm 19 is about. And two, everybody doesn't. Even today, everybody doesn't. So what else could he mean? Uh, here's another option, another interpretation option. He's saying that what's true about God's revelation is also true about the gospel. That would be an application of Psalm 19 instead of ripping it out of its context and using it in some totally different sense than how it was written originally. You could be saying, as general revelation goes throughout all the earth, so the gospel goes throughout all the earth. Um, I would say to that, maybe, maybe verse 18 is saying that. I suppose that's a possibility. If you specifically say it's gone throughout Israel, then I go, yeah. Okay, the gospel had gone throughout Israel for sure by that time. So you could definitely affirm that. The Jewish people had heard about this Messiah for, for sure. Um, the sound of Messiah had gone throughout the Jewish world, but I still think that that seems like a, like a little bit, like something's lacking there, you know? Like I feel like, I don't know if that's really what he's saying. So here's my thought. I think that if you've been following when we dealt with how Paul was quoting Hosea and stuff like that earlier on in chapters uh, eight, nine, especially nine, how he quotes the Old Testament, 
it's a strategic way of teaching a Jewish person. See, what, what, a, what a teacher has to do is they have to, they have to not only understand the truth of something, they have to figure out how to get you on the path to that truth. One idea to another idea to another idea so that you go, ah, I get it. So, I mean, our greatest moments as teachers is when the light bulbs go on for people. They go, I understand that now. I love that. I love that. Um, and maybe I lose some people along the way. My bad. <laughs> it's not my goal. <laughs> I'm doing my best. Um, <clears throat> but let me see if I can explain this idea. What Paul is possibly doing is possibly writing specifically to that Jewish mindset again, like he did in Romans 9. And he's saying to them, um, yes, you need to hear the gospel to get saved. Okay, you need this message. Does that mean you have an excuse for having not heard? And the answer comes like this, to the Jewish mind. Hey, remember how Psalm 19 talks about how everybody should know there's a God. Those Gentiles, they have no excuse. You're the Jew now. Those Gentiles have no excuse for worshiping those false idols because creation declares the glory of God and the earth shows his handiwork. And so then the Jew will be like, yeah, that's right. Foolish idols, foolish false religions, they should know there is only one true God. How could they not know this? And now Paul is setting them up. Because now that the Jew says, I affirm Psalm 19, the Gentile could and should have responded to general revelation. Now he brings it back to the Jew. And Jewish person, you had a lot more than general revelation. You had not only creation, but you had the word of God proclaiming the truths of Christ before he ever showed up. And you rejected him. That's what he's saying. To the Jew who has rejected, obviously there were many Jews that did receive, and many today who are absolutely followers of Messiah. So that's where he leads them to this. Um, that's why verse 18, it, it says, Have they not heard? Speaking about the whole world. The whole world has heard these truths. But verse 19 as we go into verse 19, he says, but did Israel not know? But I say, did Israel not know? So the Gentiles, they have general revelation. They're accountable. But Israel, you are accountable too. So let's read verse 19. He says, but did Israel not know? For, for Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. So let me, let me recap. Everybody has a certain level of accountability. Romans 1, Psalm 19. Talk about that. Israel had greater knowledge and therefore a greater accountability. And this quote in verse 19, it's a quote from Moses, from the Song of Moses at the end of Deuteronomy 32. Ultimately, what happens in Deuteronomy 32 is Moses predicts that Israel will reject the rock and they will turn from God. And because of them rejecting him and accepting other things, he will then turn to a foolish people and accept them to make Israel jealous. Well, if you're not Jew, you're Gentile. So God is saying he will embrace Gentiles to make the Jewish people jealous. So what is Paul saying? He's like, hey, Israel, you knew this would happen. God bringing us the rock who is Christ. You reject Christ. God embraces the Gentiles. Israel, you knew this would happen. Now we back up for a second and go, remember Romans 9, 10, and 11 are about Jewish people, are about Israel and Israel's rejection of Jesus and establishing it biblically. So does that make sense? I hope that this, this connects and clicks. Um, I'm doing my best. I'm doing my best. I need to be better. I must get better. Um, so the, the question, did Israel not know? Again, 
Paul is just establishing that everything that's happened with Jesus fits a biblical pattern so that the skeptical Jew cannot say, God would never turn from Israel and embrace these Gentiles. Oh yeah? Didn't you know this was going to happen, Israel? Didn't you know? I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. I just love that these truths are in the Old Testament. I mean, this is, I, it, it's hard to imagine how the Jews received this when Isaiah writes these things, when, when Moses says these things. And they're like, well, we have to keep it. It's scripture, but I don't like what it says. You know, it's like we're going to be re- rejected. We're going to be, in a sense, set aside as God is reaching out to Gentiles. Um, so it's not just Jesus that was prophesied. Jesus and his death and resurrection, these are prophesied, but it's, it's even the ripple effects afterwards are also in the text of the Old Testament. The rejection of Israel, the embracing of the Gentiles. We'll get more into this in chapter 11 of Romans. So let's read on, verse 20. It says, but Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. This is from God's perspective. God is going to be found by who? By people who do not seek him and do not ask for him. These would be the Gentiles. Let me read to you to support this point some other verses uh, that talk about in the Old Testament about how the Gentiles will be receiving God. Uh, Psalm twenty-two twenty-seven. It says, All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. All the ends of the world, all the families of of nations are going to worship before you. Do you guys know what psalm I just quoted? Psalm 22. Yes, this is a messianic psalm. Deeply messianic about Jesus and the fulfillment of not only his death and resurrection and his substitutionary atonement, all this great stuff, but also the ripple effects about how it goes out to the nations of the world. Um, So did Israel not know? Yes. Isaiah 52 verse 15 You know where that is, right? Isaiah 52, verse 15. This is that that great messianic passage. It says, So he shall sprinkle many nations. Not one. Many. Many nations. Kings, plural, shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. So that there are the Jews carrying these texts, and they've been considering and hearing about these things. But after these events happen, the atonement, Jesus' death and resurrection... There's kings who've never had these texts that will hear about them and they'll consider them. And um, it's neat stuff, neat stuff. Isaiah 49, verse 6, it says, Indeed, he says, speaking of Messiah, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus' universal offer of salvation through, uh, through his sacrifice. So this is, this is super biblical, right? It, it, what would keep a Jewish person from being able to receive this? It's in the text. It's right there. It's consistent. Paul's preaching it from the Old Testament. He's writing this so that it can hopefully draw a, a person from that Old Testament mindset through these things to understand who Jesus is, why he was re- rejected by many of the Jews, all this stuff. What would keep them? I can only think of national or religious pride that might keep somebody from accepting these things because it's right there, you know, it's right in the text. Verse 21, uh, but to Israel, he says, all day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. 
So those last two quotes, verse 20 and 21, are from Isaiah 65, verses 1 and 2. So he quotes them back to back. The first one is saying, he'll be found by these who, did, who do not seek him, speaking of these Gentiles. But to Israel, he says, verse 21, all day long I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. This is written out of love for the Jewish person who loves their fellow Jews just like Paul did, just like God does. It's showing them something. This is not a some sort of racial rejection of Jewish people, some sort of religious attack upon Jewish people. This is a fulfillment of the scriptures of the Jewish people that God would bring the Gentiles in and there would at least be, in some sense, at least for some time, a rejection of his own people. Why? Not because God hates them, not because of any lack of love. In fact, it says, all day long, I stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible predicts the Messiah, the acceptance of Yahweh by Gentiles through this Messiah, and the rejection of the Jews for a time. And the rejection is the Jews rejecting these things. The Jews rejecting the Messiah. The Jews rejecting God reaching his hands out to them. Not all of them, but a a lot of them, unfortunately. Um, Now, this sets us up really nicely for chapter 11 because you got to go, well, if they're rejected, then what do you mean by rejected? And so that's how he starts chapter 11. He'll say, has God cast away his people? And we'll probably tackle the whole chapter next week. But before we do that, I want to close with this. Um, This verse just hits my heart really heavily. Verse 21, all day long I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And I can't help but, but, but think, Lord, that could be me. God's love and grace, you might even sense God's love for you and his grace and his kindness and the offer of his, his goodness and his direction and stuff in your life, but that doesn't mean that you're following it. And he might be stretching his hands out to me and I might be the disobedient and contrary person where I keep ignoring the, the leading of the Holy Spirit in my life, ignoring the clear teaching of the word in some area or issue of my life. And that kind of scares me. I need to make sure that this doesn't describe me. Do you know after Jesus came and was largely rejected, Israel went through one of the worst times ever. The temple was destroyed. The people, it was bad. It was bad. In 70 AD, it was bad. In the late 60s, in the, the, the wars that went on there, it was bad. My thought is this. I mean, Proverbs 29.1, it says this. He who is often rebuked, and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. Hebrews 13 warns us, it says, lest any of you should be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin does, it creeps in, it deceives us. So there may be God's reaching out going, listen to my voice. You need to stop this. You need to do this. And we're hearing him and we know it's the Lord. But if we don't listen, there's going to be consequences. And it may or may not be eternal consequences, but I don't even want non-eternal negative consequences in all honesty. I don't really want those either. And I don't want to rob God's glory being shown through my life because of some rebellion or some foolishness that I've fallen into, the deceitfulness of sin. So the question is this, and here's what I'll leave us with tonight. Whatever you know, 
whatever is clear from the teaching of God's word for our own lives to li- how we should live it out, or it's clear through the witness of the Holy Spirit in your own heart, or through the rebukes of life, you feel like you're being corrected on some issue. I'm, I'm begging you, act on it. Take action on those things. Purify your, your heart or wash your hands or whatever it needs to be done to just make sure that your life is just on, on track with Christ. That you could say, my eyes are set on Jesus. I'm laying aside sin. I'm laying aside the weights. And I'm running with endurance the race set before me. Because I fully believe that God wants to use us so much in our lives. And I know, I mean, you know, being a young person, I guess I'm not that young anymore. But being, when I was, when I was a young boy, I remember looking up at the, at the, um, the older generation of believers. And I would see sometimes what I felt like were compromises in their lives. And it wasn't that I judged them negatively. It wasn't like that at all. But it, you know what, what I actually remember thinking was, I wonder how much they would have been able to serve the Lord had they not allowed this to take over their life. That's what I remember wondering. Like, I wonder how much their, their own life would have been different had they not allowed this to come in and dominate. And, and all we can do is, is move forward for tomorrow. We can't reclaim yesterday, but we can move forward for tomorrow and we can say, God, if there's something in my life that is not pleasing to you, I, I want to I respond to you. I don't, if you're stretching out your hands to me and I'm being disobedient or contrary, man, I want to take your hands, Lord. I want to yield to this. I don't want to fall to the deceitfulness of sin. And as I read, read this verse in verse 21, um, I just thought, I don't want it to be me. And he'll get into this in chapter 11. He goes, oh, don't think you're better than the Jewish people, dummy. You know what the difference is between Jews and Gentiles when it comes to spiritual issues? There isn't one. <laughs> that's kind of the point. <laughs> the guy just picked a, a people that's just like the rest of the people in the world so he could demonstrate his grace and, and bring forth the truth. And, uh, and there is great hope for the Jewish people. And I love Jewish people. I kind of wish I was a Jewish person, but I'm not. So I'm jealous. Um, and, uh, and we'll get into there in chapter 11. And how some people have taken this, this rejection of Israel concept like way beyond what scripture would allow them to. And they've abused it in the past and, and been anti-Semitic or violent or hateful. Um, and even guys like Martin Luther, who we, in some sense, we look up to because of the... the, the the, uh, the 500th years of the Reformation, the anniversaries this year, actually. Uh, but because of the Reformation, because of taking a stance on the word of God. Um, but when it came to his attitude towards Jewish people, I was not Christ-like at all um, towards the end. And uh, he was good at first, and then he got kind of dumb. Um, and we, may we all take it as a warning. Sometimes we're good at first, and then we get dumb. Let's pray. Um, Father God, we, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, just that we'd understand the passage, but we'd also understand its application to our lives. If there's areas in which you're reaching out into our hearts and our lives saying, listen to me here, do what I say, Lord, we don't want to be those who constantly harden our necks and stiffen ourselves against change. We don't want to see the fall that comes because of that or the consequences upon ourselves or our loved ones or your glory in our lives. Lord, we love you. and We want to hear you. And so we pray this, let us be clay in your hands, soft and moldable and changeable by the potter. Let us be those who are hearing freshly, you reminding us again, maybe of something we've known really well in the past and we've doled ourselves to it. We just pray, let us be sensitive again to your Holy Spirit, to be changeable and moldable and shapeable by you, God, for your glory. Let us lay aside sin and weights, things that just weigh us down. 
Let us fix our eyes on Jesus and run with endurance. In Jesus' name, amen.